Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Um, well, hello, it's great to be here this morning. Uh, my name's Mark. I've got the privilege of being on the speaking team here at Creekside, and um, we're really glad that you could come out uh, today. Um, we're going to start with a bit of an activity. Now, I have um, three Cadbury cream egg chocolates to give away. Are you pumped? Are you excited? Who's bought Easter eggs already? I have. I'm not afraid to admit it. So um, we're going to play a game where we're going to look at some misunderstood lyrics. So I'm going to put up some lyrics that are, are not the real lyrics of a song, but the misunderstood version. And you have to tell me what you think the real lyrics are. So we'll have a look at the first one. Thanks, Bryn. Uh, you're the wobbly one. Does anyone know what song that should really be? There's a Cadbury cream egg chocolate in it for you. Does anyone want to have a guess? What is the real lyric? Yes. You're the one that I want. Yes. Let's have a listen. Ah, that's <laughs> I don't know what that is. We got it. Oh, there you go. Awesome. Is anyone a big Grease fan? No. Yes. So, there you go. Since John Travolta and uh, Olivia Newton-John there. So, okay. Uh, next one. Right. So, uh, let's have a look at this one. Uh, I just died in your barn tonight, mustard, no mayonnaise instead. Does anyone think they know what this could be? Oh, yes. What do you think? I just died in your arms tonight. Do you know the rest? Oh, what do you think? Okay, let's have a listen. I just died on your arms tonight. There must have been something you said. Oh, big round of applause. There you go. So, there you go. Okay, and this last one, this is a bit harsh, this last one. Let's have a look. Then I saw her face. Now I'm going to leave her. Does anyone think that? Oh, there's heaps of people. Right, there you go. What do you think? Now I'm a believer. Let's have a listen. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. Oh, there you go. Big round of applause. That's from a band called the Monkeys. I thought it was from Smash Mouth, but apparently it's from another band called the Monkeys. So, um, we've been looking. We've been in a series called Find Freedom, and we've been looking at different ways in which um, Paul, who was a church leader, has been writing to the churches of Galatia and encouraging them to find freedom. And he's along the way, he's been dealing with a number of misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding that he dealt with was that some people had believed that it's not enough to believe in Jesus; must we must also obey God's commands in order to be reconcile with God or be rescued by God. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone that we are rescued. It is, it is solely based on what Jesus does on our behalf. And the second week, last week, we looked at the idea that some people had this idea, well, hang on, if that's true, why did God give us so many commands? Like, surely he gave us commands so that we could be obedient, and surely he gave us commands so that we could be obedient, so we could earn our way. And Paul again addresses that, and he says, no, that's another misunderstanding. The whole purpose of the commands was not to save us, but to point us to the one who could save us. So the, the, the commands, as we try to obey, we would realize our inability to obey. We would realize our need for a savior and go running to the one who could save. 
And this week we're going to look at a third misunderstanding. But before we do that, I just want to do a bit of a recap. This is really Paul's argument up until now. If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, which is what Paul's been arguing, and the commands were never meant to save us, but were meant to point us to the one who could save us, then should we go on sinning? Isn't this the obvious question, right? If we don't need to obey God in order to be saved, and the whole purpose of the commands was not to save us, but to point us to the one who could save us, should we just go on sinning? This is the obvious question. Now, Paul addresses this question in his letter to the churches of Galatia, um, and he says this in chapter 2. We who are Jews by birth, so he's talking as a Jew to fellow Jews, um, by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified, that is made right with God by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified or made right with God by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, not by obeying the law. Because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? In other words, if we don't need to obey, if we can just live however we want, Are we saying that Jesus actually came to promote sin? This is a reasonable question that is being asked by those in Galatia and Paul wants to address it. In another letter that Paul wrote, he wrote also to the churches of Rome and he asked a similar question. He says, shall we go on sinning? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase or grace may abound? This is the obvious question. This is where the argument leads us to. Now, in order to address this question, I'm just going to look at a short passage from the end of Paul's letter. Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible there, you're very welcome to turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 13. He writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. This whole thing has been about freedom. He wants them to be free from the consequences of their sin. He wants them to be free from guilt and shame and condemnation. He wants them to be free from God's wrath. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Or some translations say indulge the sinful nature. Here we find that Paul does want us to be free, but not just free from the consequences of our sin, but also free from the power of sin. Paul knows, as you know, as everyone knows, everyone who's ever bought a self-help book knows in their life, there are things in me and there are things in you that enslave us. There are parts of my life that if I could get rid of, I'd happily get rid of them in a moment. And what we know and what Paul knows and what God knows is that there is things that are attractive in this world that might seem like a good idea at the time, but ultimately they can enslave us. And Paul is writing to the church, churches of Galatia, and he's saying, listen, Just because you're free from the condemnation of your sin, just because you're free from the consequences of your sin, don't get trapped, don't get enslaved by the power of sin. I also want you to be free from the power of sin. He goes on to say, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sinful nature. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to uh, to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Now, this is hugely important. The Bible teaches that when we become a Christian, we are, as Jesus puts it, born again. We are given a new life. We are a new creation. 
the new has come and the old has gone. Now, some people think, or they take this to mean, that once a person becomes a Christian, they no longer have what the Bible would describe as a sinful nature. They no longer have any desire in them to sin. And they would even argue that we can achieve what they describe as a theological term, sinless perfection, that you can walk this earth and never sin again. And there are many people today, even amongst a number of young adults in Brisbane, actually, this has been a big movement amongst the young adults in Brisbane over the last couple of years, where people are saying we no longer have a sinful nature and they can go years, even decades without sinning. Now, ideally, that would be fantastic, but it's just not the reality. Yes, when a person becomes a Christian, they receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God takes ownership of their life and begins to transform them from the inside out. But they still have a sinful nature. And Paul is saying here, the desires of the sinful nature and the desires of the Holy Spirit are in conflict with each other. They are battling against each other. There is a battle raging within. And he goes on to say in verse 19, the acts of the flesh or the acts of sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Now, what's interesting is that Paul isn't giving another list of commands. Paul's looked at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. There's 613 commands in the Mosaic Law. Paul's not saying, hey, listen, the key here is to give you more and more commands. Rather, what he's saying is, here's a description of the kind of life that can be produced in someone when the sinful nature has full reign. If you allow the sinful nature to go to its full extent and completely take over someone's life, this is the kind of life that could be produced. It goes on to say something which can be very confusing. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that is confusing. Because Paul has just spent this entire letter explaining it is not about what we do. It is about what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's not about how we live. It's about how Jesus lived on our behalf, how he died on our behalf, how he rose on our behalf. So Paul is making the point that, you know, it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done. But then he comes along and he says, hey, listen, but I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this seems confusing and to be honest, scary. Because some of those things that Paul listed, we all are guilty of. I mean, put your hand up if you've ever been jealous at some point in your life, you know? Put your hand up if you've ever had any selfish ambition at some point in your life, like all of us have. So this passage, we've got to be very careful here. If you're new to the church or kind of new to this whole Christian thing and you're trying to figure this thing out, just be aware that sometimes there are Bible passages you'll come across which can be very confusing. Please hang in there. Please don't jump to crazy conclusions without doing some some research or without checking up with some other people. Paul could very well be saying in his whole letter, he'd be saying, it's by grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's not about what you've done. And now he's completely changed his mind and saying, now I want you to know if you live like this, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a possible interpretation. Doesn't seem likely. No, 
It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction of what he's been saying. And if it's true, none of us would make it. Rather, a better interpretation would be to say this. What Paul is saying is, listen, this list, this description of how the sinful nature can take over someone's life, when, when the sinful nature has full reign in someone's life, this is what can happen to someone who's outside the kingdom of God, who doesn't belong to the kingdom of God, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Why would we, who have the Spirit, those of us who are Christians, why would we, who belong to the kingdom, want to live like this? Why would we want to imitate their lifestyle? Why would we want to go down that track? He's not saying if you do these things, you're no longer a Christian. He's not saying if you do these things, you're no longer part of God's family. He's saying those who are not part of God's family, if the sinful nature has full reign in their life, that's where it can go. Why would you want to? Why would we want to go down that path? Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll, who, is the, um, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, he wrote this. Paul didn't mean for his list of dirty deeds to become a checklist for determining whether a person is saved or not. If any of us were to be caught on a bad day, week or month, we would all fail such a test and be judged by others as outside the kingdom of God. Rather, Paul's point is that because these lifestyles of sin typify those who do not know Jesus, we who do have a relationship with God should be eager to avoid such practices. And that makes sense. He goes on in verse 22. This is Paul writing, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And again, sometimes we look at this list as a, as a list of commands. You should be joyful. You should be self-controlled. But really, Paul's not giving another list of commands. He's describing the kind of life that the Spirit can produce in someone's life when the Spirit has full control. He goes on to say, Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, I've covered a lot there. What I want to do in the time we have left is maybe look at some three practical implications. What could this mean for our life practically today? And the first is this. The key to the Christian life is not to add more and more commands, but rather to live by the Spirit. Um, several years ago, there was a, um, an author by the name of Joshua Harris who wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, does anyone remember this book? It's quite famous. He was a young adult. He was writing to other young adults, and he was very concerned about the dating culture amongst Christians in America. And he he knew that the Bible had certain things to say about relationships. The Bible wanted us to you know, love people and treat people well and all that kind of stuff. But he didn't feel like the Bible had gone far enough. So he decided to write an extra list of things that he thought young adult Christian people should do. And one of those was you know, not kissing before marriage. Another one was you don't date anymore. You're only allowed to do courtship or whatever it was. And he defined it or whatever. Now, he felt that the Bible hadn't gone far enough and he wanted to add extra rules. Now, you might look at that and go, well, isn't that what we all do? But actually, this is not the intent, right? 
We are not meant to be adding to the scriptures. We're not meant to be adding to what God has said. What God has said is more than enough. We are now meant to live a completely different way. Joshua Harris has since looked at that book with heaps of regret, has taken it off the market and realizes the damage it's caused. But a lot of people get caught up in this idea that the best way to get people to live what you know, might be described as a holy life, as a life that's close to God, is, is to look at the rules of the Bible and say they're not enough. We've got to add extra rules. We've got to add rule after rule after rule. And the more rules we can add, the more strict we can become, then we can live the Christian life in a far better way. Now, you might sit there and think, well, I've heard of some of these things, but it's not a big deal. There are entire websites devoted to giving you extra rules where the Bible has been silent. And this is crazy. Let me see if I can explain. Imagine that, um, I'm not very good at, um, what is it called, aesthetics or ambience or whatever, but imagine that I wanted to um, put some amazing lighting in this room and I decided to read, uh, not the 613 commands of the Old Testament, but 613 rules for lighting. I study the 613 rules for lighting. I, th- I study it thoroughly. And I think to myself, the key to me getting great lighting in this, this auditorium is to study the rules. And then I think to myself, well, those rules are good, but there's not quite enough. So then I find there's another book on the market called Extra Rules for Lighting. And I'm like, oh, yes, this will help me heaps. So I go and look at the extra rules for lighting, and I study the extra rules for lighting between the 613 original rules and then the extra rules. Surely then we can light this place up better than anyone's ever lit up a place before. Well, that's one way to approach it. But that's not going to get us anywhere. Why? Because the key to lighting is this. We need power. That's the key to lighting. I'm not saying the rules are bad. I'm not saying the rules are unhelpful. But if you want to know what's the key to lighting, the key is you need to plug the lamp in and then you need to turn the lamp on. It's that simple. What Paul is saying is that the key is not to add more and more rules, to add more and more commands, but rather to live by the Spirit. Um, He says this in his uh, letter to the church at Rome. By dying, to what, uh, sorry, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about this idea of walking with the Spirit. What he's saying is this. When a person becomes a Christian, they receive the Holy Spirit. They receive forgiveness of sins. They receive um, adoption into God's family. And they receive the Holy Spirit. But having the Holy Spirit isn't enough. Having the Holy Spirit is a bit like plugging the lamp in. You now have access to the power. But once you have the Holy Spirit, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us. It's like turning the, Holy, the, turning the lamp on. That's what it means to walk with the Spirit. In other letters, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he talks about being filled with the Spirit. In Romans, he talks about being, keeping in step with the Spirit. Every single person who believes has the Holy Spirit, but our job on a moment-by-moment basis is to allow the Holy Spirit's power to flow in us and through us, to allow Him to have control. Bill Bright once said this, The Christian life is not difficult. It is impossible 
Only one person has ever lived the Christian life, and that was Jesus Christ. Today, he desires to go on living his life through Christians whom he indwells through his spirit. The key to the Christian life is not to add more and more rules. They did that for thousands of years with the Israelites. It did not work. The key to the Christian life is to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us. The second implication is this. Just because there is fruit of the Spirit doesn't mean there won't also be fruit of the sinful nature. Um, I heard a story this week. I'll change the names just to protect the people who are part of it. Um, But there's a guy called Jim who's a Christian and he's in church leadership at his particular church. And Jim um, has met a guy called Dave who's been coming to church on and off now for about 12 months. And Jim was unsure where Dave was at. Like this church, there's a number of people who are coming week in, week out who are in the process of exploring Christianity. And Dave has been coming along And Jim was wondering, has Dave actually become a Christian or is he still exploring? Where's Dave at with this whole Christian thing? And that's completely fine. One day, or recently, Jim ran into Dave at a coffee shop and they were having a conversation and Dave dropped a few F-bombs or a few explicit words and um, Jim naturally concluded, well, Dave mustn't be a Christian because Dave's been swearing. And if he was really a Christian, he wouldn't swear. Now, you might sit there and go, well, that's pretty harsh because, you know, anyone can swear or whatever. But we hear people say this all the time. If they were really a Christian, they wouldn't do this. Oh, well, if they were really a Christian, they would never do this. Even people who are not Christians will look at Christians and go, I thought they were meant to be a Christian. If they were a Christian, how could they do this? And you hear people say this all the time. The problem is it doesn't actually make sense theologically. Let me see if I explain. Let's say earlier today or yesterday, I went to the shops and I bought a packet of Mars bars and I bought a packet of Snickers and I got you to, I got you to, um, I got someone to come up, close their eyes, reach into this, this bowl and pull out a chocolate and they hold up a Mars bar. Now, if you hold up a Mars bar, that would be evidence that I've bought Mars bars from the shops. Wouldn't you agree? But does that mean I haven't also bought Snickers? Or had you have closed your eyes and pulled out a Snickers bar, that would be evidence I bought a Snickers bar. But that doesn't mean I haven't also bought a Mars bar. Here's the go. Just because there is evidence of a sinful nature doesn't mean there's not also evidence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you have people say, if they were really a Christian, they would never do this. And I want to say things like, yeah, like if they were really a Christian, if they had the Holy Spirit, they would never do this. Like if they really had the Holy Spirit, they would never commit adultery and then murder the person who, you know, was married to the person they can, you know, like, do you see what I'm saying? Like David was a person who had the Holy Spirit and he committed adultery and murder. People who have the Holy Spirit can do crazy things. Or if they were really a Christian, they would never deny Jesus three times. People who follow Jesus can do crazy things. Just because a person has the Holy Spirit or just because a person is a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that they don't also display evidence of the sinful nature. Unfortunately, you will look at me, you will look at anyone who is a Christian and you will still see fruit of the sinful nature. 
What makes them a Christian, though, is that they trust in Jesus, they receive the Spirit, and there will be evidence of the Holy Spirit alongside evidence of the sinful nature. Is this making sense? Okay, third implication is this. The fact that this misunderstanding has arisen is proof that the true message of grace has been proclaimed. The fact that this misunderstanding has arisen, the fact that they're asking the question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? The fact that they're asking, does Christ promote sin? The fact that people are raising this issue is proof that the true message of grace has been proclaimed. When I first became a Christian, I went to a church that was very focused on God's grace. It was an amazing church. But there were people within this community that were pretty apathetic about sin. Sometimes they'd even celebrate sin. And I was a bit concerned. I was kind of a new Christian. I was trying to figure the whole thing out. And I thought, oh, maybe our church emphasizes God's grace too much. Maybe we're talking too much about grace. And maybe we've got to stop talking about grace and kind of add some conditions. And I was listening to a a message, a a talk by a guy called Charles Swindoll. And um, he wrote a talk called, Isn't Grace Risky? And in that talk, he quotes a guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a theologian. He wrote a commentary, an explanation of Paul's book to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 1 commentary was this thick. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, etc. He died before he finished. He did not get it done. When, Paul, when Martin Lloyd-Jones came to the passage in Romans where Paul asked, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. That some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that really it amounts to this. That because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. And then this is the key. This is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, it is not the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. If a man preaches justification by works, no one would ever raise this question. If a man's preaching is, if you want to be Christians and if you want to go to heaven, you must stop committing sins, you must take up good works, and if you do so regularly and constantly and do not fail to keep on at it, you will make yourselves Christians, you will reconcile yourselves with God and you'll go to heaven. Obviously, a man who preaches in that strain would never be liable to this misunderstanding. Nobody would say to such a man, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Because the man's whole emphasis is just this, that if you go on sinning, you are certain to be damned, and only if you stop sinning can you save yourselves. So that misunderstanding could never arise. This is how we know we have truly preached the message of grace, that people naturally impulsively ask, are you saying we should go on sinning? Are you saying that what we do doesn't matter? Are you saying that we could even go on sinning so that we could even make Jesus look greater and grace may abound? 
This is how we know we've preached the true message of God's grace. It is the natural question that arises. Several years ago, I was speaking at a camp and I was talking about this incredible message of God's grace. And there was a guy in the audience who hated what I said and he came up very angry and frustrated. And he's like, you know, everyone's going to start doing drugs and they're going to become drug dealers because of you. I'm like, okay, I'm sure that's not going to happen. But, you know, and he's like, you know, oh, it reminds me of this comic strip I read where there's this guy and he's kind of like smoking a joint, but he's holding up a Jesus shield to protect him from God so God can't see it. And I'm like, actually, that comic strip's a pretty good picture of the gospel. Like, that's actually how it works. And he got angry and blew up. And, you know, I found out later this guy actually used to be a drug dealer. So actually, out of the two of us, he was the one most likely to promote doing drugs rather than me. But he was very concerned and very angry that I'd been preaching this message of grace. But that is the reality. When you preach grace, people can misunderstand it to mean you're saying we should go on sinning. Paul's not saying we should go on sinning. Paul's saying, I want you to be free from the consequences of sin and the power of sin. But that question will arise. Uh, Several years ago, there was a girl in our church who became a Christian. And she lived her whole life going to church, but never understood grace. And one day we were at a kind of games night, barbecue at my house. And she, she just kind of asked about Christianity. And she went home that night and became a Christian. And she emailed me later and she said, Up until that point, I never understood God's grace. And even when I first understood it, I merely thought, cool. Now I can think of all the great things I can get away with. This was where her mind went, you know. But over time, I began to realize the Spirit of God was working in me and through me to make me more loving, more kind, more joyful, etc. She knew that God had a hold of her life and God was transforming her from the inside out. The key to the Christian life is to believe in God's grace. He pays for our past sin, our present sin, our future sin. Martin Luther said we must constantly beat the message of God's grace into our stupid heads every day. And then it's simply on a moment-by-moment basis to surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God and saying to God, work in me and through me, flow in me and through me to make me more loving, more kind, more joyful, more self-controlled. One of you pray with me. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us, not just enough to spend eternity with us, but to transform our lives today. In the best way we know how, Father, we just surrender our lives to you. Would you allow the Spirit to take control? We acknowledge our rebellion. We, re- we acknowledge our... Um, how prone we are, Father, to, to take control back. We just want to release control in this moment, Jesus. Would you allow the Spirit to flow in us and through us? Make us the people you want us to be. Amen.